Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll take you with me inside a Chicago art gallery that's partnering with the ACLU in an effort to explore what democracy means. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me and review the much-anticipated screen-to-stage adaptation of The Devil Wears Prada. And I'll catch up with the local filmmaker behind a powerful new documentary that sheds light on a Southside community's efforts to save its grade school. All that's coming up. Thanks for making time for some arts and culture this morning. A Pew Research survey from this summer reveals that about 6 in 10 U.S. adults are not satisfied with the way democracy is working in America. Democracy used to be something Americans of all political ideologies could get behind. What's changed? That's complicated. My guess is that most U.S. citizens still openly support the concept of democracy, though perceptions of what the word means may have shifted. A new art exhibit at the Weinberg Newton Gallery dives into the topic with hopes of illuminating new ways of thinking about our current political climate. The West River Neighborhood Gallery partnered with the American Civil Liberties Union of Illinois to create all that glows in the dark of democracy. The exhibition itself includes six pieces that each take a different approach to exploring democracy. In addition to the exhibit, the gallery and ACLU have partnered to create some public programming that asks visitors not to say what they're against, but what they're for. Weinberg-Newton Gallery is a non-commercial gallery that works in partnership with nonprofit organizations and artists to mount four exhibitions a year and additional programming focused on social justice issues. This is Kasha Houlihan, the director of the Weinberg-Newton Gallery. I recently caught up with her to learn more about how this exhibit came together. Our current exhibition is in partnership with the ACLU of Illinois. It's called All That Glows in the Dark of Democracy, and it's a group exhibition with works by six artists, all thinking about, questioning, criticizing that theme of democracy. Given our current political climate and some of the events that have taken place over the past few years, the timing was right for an exhibition that explores the nature of democracy. I think we're always kind of trying to respond to the present moment and um, what's on people's mind, what we feel like needs to be opened up for further conversation. I mean, a lot of the starting point with the current exhibition was in our early discussions with the ACLU of Illinois, understanding that democracy doesn't necessarily have a universal definition anymore, if it ever even did. Um, And there are a lot of kind of various viewpoints on what that means to to people in, in the United States. And so even from that starting point, 
just to then think about gathering a group of artists with different perspectives to to comment and start to um, explore what that idea means to them was a way to to think about it. But I mean, like the the specific events. I mean, even just like the last elect presidential election, January sixth. I mean, all of those things kind of factored into the kind of urgency of this issue needing to be something that we addressed. This idea of looking at democracy is universal and that you could do it at any time and it would be pertinent. But did some of those recent events surrounding the the 2020 election and its aftermath, especially January 6th, give you some additional urgency to do this exhibit now? It's funny, actually, we had a whole other exhibition planned and then we scrapped it because this just felt like the really the urgent thing that we needed to so i i was working on something else and then we kind of you know called a team meeting and made the so i you know i usually have a year run up to an exhibition opening and i think i had more like six months to work on this just because we we felt it was important enough to do that you have this idea and a shortened timeline uh, and kind of a complex theme. What was your approach to curating the, the pieces that are included in all that glows in the dark of democracy? I think I was trying to make sure that there was a range of different perspectives and that kind of translated to a different different types of mediums as well. So there's a, a flag in the, in the exhibition that's out in our courtyard that... Uh, is asking people to think about, you know, our national symbols and ways that we represent our patriotism and our pride and who and you know who we are as a country. Um, there's a video thinking about monuments and memory and um, again these kind of symbols. And then I think you know a Rom's piece specifically related to voting rights. It was I think a key element and kind of like an anchor to. That was the kind of the earliest piece that I confirmed just because that seemed like a true anchor to the issue of democracy is voting rights. And then these other pieces around like conversation and differences of opinion started to fill in those like kind of more um, abstract or just kind of nuanced aspects of democracy that I think are, are key to acknowledge that like you know, Hannah's piece references, you know, even like it's a roof structure. So it references how politics is present in the domestic space as well as the, the public space. A lot of the specifics of the exhibition really kind of developed through my conversations with the artists. It wasn't like I like went out with like, now I need to find this type of piece. It was like, oh, I'm finding the artist's who are working in this realm and let's start a conversation to find out you know what they're interested how they how they respond to the prompt of democracy and um whether that's a new piece or an, an existing piece how that can fit into the bigger picture if you're just tuning in this is the arts section my name is gary zydek i'm talking with kasha Houlihan, the director of weinberg newton gallery in chicago about its new exhibit titled all that glows in the dark of democracy that PC reference was from artist Hannah Gibbler, and so we'll try to paint a picture for listeners who can't see it at home. So she essentially kind of created the base of a structure. She has like what looks like an A-frame of a, a house. Yes, this, this is a new piece. It's called Reverb Damping Sculpture, and it's essentially a gabled roof structure that spans the width of the gallery that she, she built in specifically for our space. And the idea being that uh, it quiets the, the sound in the gallery so all voices can be heard. 
Yeah, so the the roof structure has, the, um, it's adorned um, by this felt carpet underlayment. It's that like layer that you put under your carpets that, that is this like kind of um, tightly woven felted material that, that dampens um, this, the sound in our very like echoey, large wooden space that has no kind of anything soft. Um, so as you walk underneath the structure, and you're, if you were to like be talking as you do that, you would notice the way that your the sound of your voice changes as you walk from under the roof structure and and past it as well. And then reading about some of the pieces before I got here, the one that stuck out was uh, Ariana Jacobs' yeah. piece that touches on uh, different political ideologies. But she actually originally created it in 2012. Yeah. Is she? updating it or is the installation that's here the one from 2012? So there are several elements from that piece from the 2012 version Um, but Ariana now 10 years later in 2022 is going back and revisiting the piece so it originally started in 2012 where she um, really went all across the country um, and started conversation with folks of different political persuasions to truly listen and understand where they were coming from, not to debate, not to argue, not to change anyone's mind, but to truly just have a conversation. And so now in 2022, Ariana is going, she's reconnecting with those same people that she spoke with in 2012 and documenting those conversations. So they currently exist on a blog that we will be um, updated over the course of the exhibition. I, eventually they might you know, take another form. The 2012 conversations are, were printed into a, a newspaper that she made. I think eventually she probably will do that with the 2022 conversations. I'm sure each visitor will have their own interpretation, but did the artist make a determination after talking to all those people? Was there some sense that, that people of different political stripes have more in common than we think? Or is it bleaker than that? What did she find? Um, I, I don't know if it was as like optimistic. I think maybe you'd want to like. I think there was commonality, and the most reassuring part of the 2012 piece was even though people didn't agree, they were willing to listen and and give people time. I mean, she sat with each individual for over an hour, you know, and sometimes even more, um, you know, shared a meal with them sometimes, like really took time to see that each individual as a person, as someone with like a full life and not just reduced to a political party or, um, you know, an enemy or something like that. And then what role does the ACLU then play? Do you work with them on certain ideas that you want to convey? Yeah, so the partner organizations, they're not really involved on the art side of things, but they're very involved, especially with the programming and outreach and just like communication that we do around the exhibition. So um, actually this exhibition is is kicking off um, an engagement series that the ACLU of Illinois has just started called Weed the People. And so the programs, the program series that we're putting on in conjunction with the exhibition is part of, of that effort through the ACLU of Illinois. So it started on Sunday with the Family Day. We're going to have a storytelling event in September as well as a civic engagement event. Ultimately, what do you hope visitors who come see this take away with them? I hope that when people leave the gallery that 
I think at first that maybe the exhibition leads to conversations, just even like at the dinner table or with friends. But then I think it also hopefully sparks for people ways to think of how they can take action and respond. And I think there are a lot of ways to be a participant in democracy. And, and I think this exhibition offers examples of different ways that, that that can, different forms that that can take for folks. The other thing I'll mention is, you know, one of the questions that this engagement series from the ACLU of Illinois is is posing is it's asking participants to to say like it says do not tell us what you are against tell us what you are for i think a lot of this particular political moment is about factions and enemies and and arguing and and standing against another party or person and i think if you reframe that um, as the things that we're fighting for what what is worth um, standing up for and having a voice and speaking out for um, is another way to just shift people's perspectives and and ideas of that it there are many ways in it it's actually like possible to participate to have an active um, place in democracy which I think sometimes feels out of reach or too overwhelming or intimidating. Is there even like a more practical message of go vote? I think that would be a, definitely a good place to start, certainly. I mean, that is definitely what the artist Aram Hansefuentes, whose piece is specifically about voting rights, would say, for sure. That's Kasha Houlihan, director of the Weinberg Newton Gallery. All that glows in the dark of democracy will be on display there through October 1st. You can learn more about the exhibit and the upcoming public programs associated with it by visiting WeinbergNewtonGallery.com. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the art section every week, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to The Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek, and I'm joined now by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Barbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Gary. I don't know if everyone wants to be us, but I know a lot of people wanted to go to opening night of the new Devil Wears Prada musical at the Nederlander Theater last weekend with music by Sir Elton John. There's been a tremendous amount of anticipation for this new screen-to-stage adaptation. Actually, it was a novel first, so page-to-screen-to-stage. The 2003 book authored by Lauren Weisberger was a smash, and then three years later, a film adaptation starring Meryl Streep and Anne Hathaway was a success. There's definitely a, a demographic of people who love to quote the film. So I think there was a fair amount of excitement when the musical project was announced, uh, given that Elton John and Anna Di Shapiro were involved. She's directing this inaugural production. But Jonathan, you say just because you can make a musical stage adaptation of a popular movie 
doesn't mean you should. That's right. That's uh-huh. right. And, and in fact, I was even a little more graphic, Gary. I, I say that turning movies, Hollywood movies, into Broadway musicals is like teenage sex. <laughs> Just because you can, kids, doesn't mean you should. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, uh, and The Devil Wears Prada, uh, I think, is a perfect example. It's a Broadway-bound show that differs only uh, in cosmetic changes from the film. With no new interpretations of the uh, of the major characters, no deeper emotions. Uh, it, it's a little more sentimental than the film, which isn't really an improvement. Yet it has even less of a romantic angle, and the film didn't have a, a, a particularly substantial one. And of course, romance is what uh, you know musical theater does best. Uh, in short, for me, other than money. There is no compelling reason to turn the songless movie into a stage musical. And I, I need to say, too, Carrie, before you chime in, I, would, I need to say that the talent of the cast is never in question. Uh, whatever problems this musical has, it isn't their fault. Uh, if anything, they're all given uh, too little to do. Uh, even the stars, uh, Taylor Iman Jones as uh, Andrea Andy Sachs, the young heroine, and Beth Level uh, as editor Miranda Priestley, the, the towering figure in the show. Neither one is given a real show-stopping cut-loose number, although Jones as Andy Sachs comes closest, but not till the very end of the show. Carry over to you. It's, it's funny, you know, because not long ago we talked about Priscilla, Queen of the Desert at Mercury Theater, which is also a screen-to-stage adaptation. I think that one, even though I had some issues with some elements of, of the presentation, worked better. And I think it's, it's interesting because certainly Priscilla, you're thinking drag, that lends itself to theatricality. Fashion certainly should lend itself to theatricality. But for me, although I didn't hate The Devil Wears Prada, and there are moments that are quite enjoyable, and I do agree with you about the the leads in particular, it feels to me like a show that kind of wants to have it both ways and hasn't really decided what its purpose is. On the one hand, it is trying to, you know, be faithful to the original, you know, to the, the, uh, the backbiting barbs, the ice princess Miranda Priestley who rules over runway with an, you know, iron fist and various probably beautiful shades of velvet gloves, um, and, and allegedly based on Anna Wintour, the longtime uh, editor at Vogue. But at the other end of it, they're also trying to make some nods towards updating the material for our contempt- more contemporary sensibilities. Notably, and I know that this was a deliberate thing because I, I talked to Anna Shapiro a couple months ago about the cast. They had really wanted to make sure that Andy, who was played by Anne Hathaway in the film, was played by a young black woman or a woman of color, as is Emily, the other assistant, you know, who and their court sort of who is played by uh, an Asian woman. And I feel like, okay, you've done that, but it doesn't really enter into the story. Like they're not really addressing what are the stakes for these women in this world. And I think we can argue the world of fashion has largely been dominated by white notions of beauty. I'm not asking for an entire women's studies seminar on stage, but I think, to your point, Jonathan, if we gave them more songs, if we gave them something, in the way that uh, there is a character, Nigel, who's the creative director at Runway, played beautifully by Javier Munoz, he's got a great number about what fashion magazines meant to him as a young, bullied gay kid growing up in a small town. Some of that backstory, some of that interpersonal tension needs to be present for this to really work for us to believe that this is you know, that they are really trying to transform it beyond a you know by the numbers 
if you love the film, here's a song that will tell you the thing that you love in the film, right? So it, it, it just kind of, you know, it, it just felt like it was there, you know? It, yeah. it, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, didn't, I wasn't necessarily bored. I wasn't aggravated. I just felt like there are missed opportunities here for me to be hooking into this world and yeah. the perspectives of these characters. And I'm yeah. just, I'm just not seeing that. I think it can be fixable, and you know, out of town tryouts are about that. But they're really going to have to go back, I think, primarily to the book. I don't know what your feelings are, and I think if you fix some of those essential issues in the book, then you can get the songs that will really, you know, kick it into high gear, so to speak. Right now, let's let's remind the listeners that when we talk about the book, we mean the book of the musical show, right? Just to yeah. Say, yeah. Not just simply the dialogue. <laughs> No, no, nope, nope. I want Lauren Weisberger to rewrite her book, and then I want them to remake the film. <laughs> well, 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 no, because it can, it can be confusing. The book sure, is, I understand. It's, it's not just the dialogue scenes, but the overall structure. The book mm-hmm. creates the places where you have to put in the songs. And, in fact, that is probably the biggest single problem of the show. The songs are the show's basic, big, biggest problem. I don't mean that they're bad. The music by Elton John, it's tuneful. It's pleasant. It's mostly mainstream rock, mostly upbeat, with a couple of hints of jazz and soul. And I like the lyrics by Shina Taub, which are intelligent and clever. Yeah. But here's the deal. Nearly every point made by the songs also is made in the dialogue. Yeah. So why bother to have the songs at all? In a musical, Carrie, you know, the songs and dance must say things that words can't say, or they must advance the story in a real way. Well, there's no point in having the songs. Right, and um, I think particularly in the world of fashion, which is all about, right? I mean, so much of fashion is expressing yourself, but also disguising yourself. You know, there's that delicious tension of, who am I this time? Am I who, who, am I, who I am dressed up to be? Do you see the real me? I mean, there's all those kinds of things with presentation, which certainly, again, to reference Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, I think they, that did that. That show did that pretty well. You know, the idea of who I am when I'm off stage, who am I when I'm on stage, who am I when I'm at work, who am I when I'm not at work. You know, and, and I think particularly there can be great dramatic tension with the idea of this young black woman in particular, and again, very deliberately cast to not be the white Anne Hathaway <laughs> clone negotiating this world that she doesn't really want to belong to at first, but then finds herself becoming more and more competitively drawn into it. That's, they're so, that, that's rich material, and I just really wish they would lean, really lean into it. Like, if you're going to introduce that, go for it. Curiously, this is not really a show about fashion. I understand your points, and I don't disagree. They should use the fashion, which is the context of the show, but it's not what the show is about. It's about right. a relationship between an older woman in a position to mentor, if she chooses to, and a younger woman. And you could take it out of fashion and put it in sure. you know, industrial design, and, and, <laughs> and right. the nature of, of it thematically would still be the same. But fashion gives them the perfect opportunity, but they don't use it. I mean, there are a lot of interesting costumes swirling around, but there's never like a fashion show in the movie, in in the show, in the show at all. Yeah, that's something they could use. And I think they could also possibly build up the romantic uh, conflict uh, because uh, Andy Sachs does have a boyfriend, uh, mm-hmm. They've reduced the role from the film, and the role was 
small enough in the film, but it's still bigger. You know, these guys don't even have a love song together before right. they break up. And um, I, so I think there's something you could. You yeah, could do I agree with that. that. Yeah, you want you if we are to you know be thinking about what is she giving up by pursuing this world yes. of runway, we need to see what that other world is. And there are you know there are nods exactly. at that. We meet her roommates. There are some you know there's a couple you know funny little interludes at a bar where they play pool. That's you know much more you know much more uh, down home I think than the than the the world that Miranda Priestly is occupying in her off hours if ever she has off hours. Um, but I think they could do more with that. And I, again, I don't think these are things that need to completely turn the show inside out. I think there are places where instead of telling us what you're about to sing about, you know, yeah, cut, yeah, look, tell us something yeah. different and then let the song provide that counterpoint and yeah. provide that dramatic tension exactly. and raise the stakes for us. Yeah. You, you know that when the audience applause a set change, and audiences do <laughs> applaud a set change when this show shifts from New York to Paris. Mm-hmm. It's usually yeah. a sign that there isn't much else to cheer about or not enough. And by the right. way, it's a lovely and effective visual element, this scene change. And one of the only surprises in the show. And right. that's another thing that's missing, the element of surprise. The scenic design includes a turntable which is used only twice for perhaps 90 seconds in total. And it also includes includes a huge double red staircase at the end of Act One that also has little function. Now, these are really expensive devices. Scenery costs a lot of money, and they serve little purpose. So one wonders why they are there at all. And it says something else about the structure and maybe the development and changes of the show. I have to say, and one of my favorite little moments is in the Paris scene, and it kind of reminded me of like an American in Paris or, you know, any kind of like ballet, dance, you know, interlude. We see these, they're just background characters. They're sailors and they're these two women. And you're thinking, oh, the sailors and the women are going to, you know, they're going to find each other. But no, no, the women find each other. The sailors find each other. It's a beautiful little moment of commentary that's not hammering us over the head it's almost like a silent little dumb show it's not a huge moment but it's like a beautiful subtle little thing and i'd like to think that that's something that anna shapiro did because as a director i've always thought she's very good at filling in those little moments those little connections that give such texture and nuance and i think there's room for more of that to emerge as well particularly in the relationship between miranda and andy as you said if it's about mentoring then, you know, if you've ever had a mentor, then it's not just about what they say to you. It's what they don't say. It's what they, the looks they give you. It's the, the physical, you know, body language you pick up on. Even in a, you know, in a large Broadway show or a Broadway bound show, I think there are moments that you can find to do that. And, and then that's not a hard fix. But again, it has to come organically from the story you're deciding to tell. And I think yeah. that's really it. They haven't quite decided what the story is that they want to tell, other than yeah. let's just do what the film did, and that's not good enough for, for me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I, I, if I, you I, love the film, I think there are a lot of people who do love this, you know, who are very happy to be there, and I will never take that away from them. And I think they need to just kind of raise the bar a bit. Yeah, I agree that fans of the movie probably are going to flock to this musical and not care at all if they even notice that it's not really a very good show in a lot of structural ways. Uh, Fans of musical theater as an art form, uh, such as you and I are, Carrie, as professional observers, (laughs) fans of musical theater as an art form will be disappointed at how ordinary 
the Devil Wears Prada is it's not bad, like you said, and I, I certainly enjoyed listening to Elton John's music. It's mm-hmm. not bad. It certainly is far from awful, but it is just ordinary. Right. I think in particular, I think we probably, I, I'll speak for each other, but I think probably you and I both had very high expectations based in, indeed on the pedigree of the, of the creative team. And I don't know how much of it, you know, this is a project that's been in the works since before the shutdown. I don't know whether trying to create in the shutdown, you know, had had any influence on maybe some things, you know, they did reference at the curtain call at the opening night that they'd had several understudies and swings that they'd had to put in due to COVID. Um, you know, so I don't know if just trying to keep all those balls in the air and making sure, you know, everybody they needed was on stage when they needed them, you know, somehow obscured the process. Obviously, I'm not in the room. I don't know. But I can say from the results, it just felt like, this this hasn't this hasn't gotten there yet. You know? yeah. But I think, yeah. as I said, they they can make it work, but they're just going to have to go back and do more work. Yep. And and part of what they're going to need to ask uh, do, I think, is they're going to have to ask uh, you know Sir Elton to go back to the composing board, the drawing mm-hmm. board, the composing board. Uh, they really need to construct some longer musical sequences that give music, song, and especially dance which is mm-hmm. really just an add-on decorative item right now. They need to give all of these something to do, as Elton John did so brilliantly and successfully in Billy Elliot, the musical, the, right. the stage adaptation there. And that is a missing element as well. For those who were hoping to get a glimpse of Sir Elton at the opening <laughs> night, by the way, he was nowhere to be seen. Uh, he had been in Chicago, He, you know, uh, two nights before he gave his... Uh, farewell tour concert at uh, Soldier Field or some other enormous venue. So he had been around, and presumably he'd looked in and maybe spent some time um, in rehearsals, but he was gone by opening night. I think they're going to have to get him back in. (laughs) When you both talk about uh, making some alterations, what does that traditionally look like? Uh, Gary, it can take a lot of forms depending on the show. Sometimes all they need to do is cut one or two numbers and add one or two new numbers, maybe, uh, like I said, a spectacular big number for one of the two stars or or the big number for each of them. Uh, In this case, I think they have something a little more fundamental to do. I think they have to uh, make the songs work harder uh, and not simply have songs and dialogue duplicate uh, what each is doing. And I think they need to make dance work harder as well. And as Kerry said, they need to set up some sort of emotional tension or conflict for Andy Sachs to 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 show the choices that she makes. And I think they can do it by uh, enlarging or reinforcing the romantic angle with her boyfriend. Nate Owens is his name, a young chef. But uh, we can't tell them how to do it. They have to figure it out. <laughs> If folks are interested, The Devil Wears Prada continues at the Nederlander Theater through August 21st. And really quickly, the two of you wanted to to pay tribute to the recent passing of a Chicago theater artist. Gary, Carrie and I wanted to note the unexpected passing of someone that uh, I think we both liked in our interpersonal uh, reactions with her and also tremendously important to Chicago's uh, very vital arts community, not just theater. And that was Myrna Salazar, who died uh, unexpectedly in early August. And 
She was a co-founder of an organization called CLATA, the Chicago Latino Theater Alliance, and also a co-founder of the annual Chicago International Latino Theater Festival. Perhaps they are now calling it the Latinx Theater Festival. I don't know. Uh, she was uh, always beautifully turned out and dressed. She was sociable, um, vibrant, enthusiastic, and one of those people who was a real mover and shaker in the Chicago arts community, not just theater, and also one of those people building community among the various different Latinx communities that we have in the city. And uh, I always enjoyed conversations with her, and I will miss her and the work that she did. She was, you know, she had a background in marketing and advertising. She did film festivals. She ran a talent agency for many years where she secured, you know, uh, contracts often for uh, Latinx uh, clients. I I was thinking about her influence with so many women who now run uh, primarily Latina theater, uh, Latino theater companies in Chicago, whether it's uh, Marcela Munoz at Aguajon, Miranda Gonzalez at Urban Theater Company, Lorena Diaz and Winnie Mateo, who run Teatro Vista. And I think all of them would say Mirna really set the standards for them. She also appeared, I don't know if any of our listeners would remember a show called La Havana Madrid several years ago by Santa Delgado that made the rounds in a couple different productions. But Mirna appeared as a character in that. Um, so she, she literally made her mark on stage and off stage. And I think her, uh, her contributions, particularly to Latinx culture and the community, cannot be overstated. She is definitely going to be very deeply missed. And I know that the, the Destinos Festival of International uh, Latino Theater that is happening in September is dedicated to her memory. Well, thanks for, for sharing that. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. Thank you. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. A new documentary offers an inspiring look at a local community's efforts to save its grade school. Let the Little Light Shine documents the efforts to save the National Teachers Academy Elementary School near the South Loop. The school, which serves 80% African-American students, is among the highest-ranking K-8th through grade public schools in Chicago. In the winter of 2018, the Chicago Board of Education approved a CPS plan to transition National Teachers Academy, a.k.a. NTA, into a public high school. Not wanting to lose what they viewed as a beacon of light for their community, a group of parents and students began a passionate effort to save the school. Let the Little Light Shine provides an overview of the various moving parts of the story, giving special attention to the reasons why NTA is such an important part of the community, as well as examining the various reasons why this idea to transition the school was even started. When we think about schools in our communities, we need to look at them more than just what they do from an education standpoint. They can serve as building blocks for families. They can serve as families. That was the one thing about National Teachers Academy is that why it was so important and why this proposal was so damaging and would create so much harm is that you'd be breaking up a family. This is Kevin Shaw. He's the director of Let the Little Light Shine. The film, which has garnered rave reviews on the festival circuit, is in the midst of a Chicago run at the Cisco Film Center. 
It will head to New York and L.A. next, and then will be broadcast on PBS's documentary series POV in December. A few days ago, I caught up with the Chicago native and current Bolingbroke resident to talk about the journey to make Let the Little Light Shine. I read that your connection to this story came from a, a former childhood classmate, that she was going through some stuff and you read about it, and that's kind of what keyed you into this? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so the main film participant, the main parent in our story, Elizabeth Greer and I were elementary school classmates. We both went to the same elementary school on the south side of Chicago in, in Beverly. And uh, we had grown apart, had lost contact with one another, uh, had reconnected on Facebook after many decades. And over the course of that time, uh, I noticed that she was posting articles and news items and videos about her activism around trying to save her children's school, uh, National Teachers Academy, from being closed and transitioned into a high school. And... The story initially of what was going on there at NTA caught my eye uh, because I was really interested in some of the dynamics that were going on in the South Loop neighborhood. Uh, but then I was also really intrigued by this kind of new version of Elizabeth that I had seen on online. You know, when she was out there protesting, she was a different person in regards to the, 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 the classmate that I had known back in elementary school. She was no longer that shy, quiet, keep to yourself person. She was on the front lines here, really advocating strongly for uh, a position that she believed in. And so that idea of an average everyday person kind of stepping into their voice, stepping into their power and fighting for something that they truly believed in, in terms of social justice, was something that intrigued me as well. And so those two kind of themes really made me go ahead and pursue this idea of wanting to follow the parents, students, and educators there at National Teachers Academy as they went through this journey. And so in those early days when you, you kind of have that intrigue, then do you have any idea at that point like what this could turn into? I knew there was going to be an end game. So I knew that the school was either going to transition into a high school and that was going to bring some sort of, of dramatic element to the community there in terms of how they were going to deal with that change, or they were going to be successful in their efforts of, in, in stopping this proposal from happening. And that was going to bring its own emotional climax to the story as well. So I knew there was going to be an ending. I just didn't know which way it was going to go. And that's kind of the, the beauty of, of doing this sort of documentary filmmaking that I love to do and, and other films that I've seen in the past that have really resonated with me. Uh, filmmakers don't really know what's, what life is going to bring to the participants who have agreed to allow a filmmaker to document their journeys, you know. And so, yeah, I'm along for the ride. I'm excited to see what happens. And you have uh, tremendous access to the... Uh... National Teachers Academy community, teachers, staff, the, the families of the students who go there. What was the community's reaction when you approached them with this idea about making a documentary? Well, I think Elizabeth vouched for me in the very beginning, and then I just really spent the time and the effort in 
trying to get the community to know me as an individual that did not have, you know, it wasn't trying to exploit the community for any particular reason. Like I was truly engaged with what they were trying to do in regards to saving their school. And so when you come with that sort of authenticity, I think that brings a lot of weight. People then begin to open up and and trust you. So, you know, I'm not at every function or meeting or event or celebration with my camera. You know, a lot of times I'm just there as a, a person, as a citizen, getting to know everybody. And I think that that speaks a lot of volumes, too, because then people really recognize that you are interested in them as individuals and truly interested in what they're going through. And again, you're not trying to uh, exploit their story for any sort of profit or, or career gain or anything. So I think over the course of the two years that I've gotten to know everybody there in the community, we've bonded. We've become I've become maybe part of sort of their family that they have, which is great. And, you know, we're all, we've all are connected by this experience forever. And again, that just kind of speaks to the type of documentary filmmaking that I like to do, where you really do get to know the people that are part of your films and they become part of you, you know, and, and a bond is created that is not going to be broken easily. Just from the outside looking in, a Chicago area resident who isn't familiar with NTA might not understand how this situation came to be, but what is it about National Teachers Academy Elementary School that is so unique? Well, I think for one, it's a beacon for black and brown children here in the city. I think um, the educators there have been doing a tremendous job, specifically for the group of students that attend there. A lot of them have come from uh, the South Luton neighborhood, uh, from lower income families, from some of the uh, homes that uh, around there and the Dearborn homes, formerly the Icky homes that used to be there. Um, So these are children that are sometimes written off that, that we have low expectations of, and these kids are excelling and they are a shining light to this city and should be held up as a model to what public education, especially at the elementary school level, can be. I think it's more than just them being a great school and and students getting great grades, their community, their family. And I think that's one of the reasons why when this proposal was introduced to kind of transition the school from this elementary school into a high school, you would be breaking down this community that had been built at NTA that had taken many years to build. You know, when it was first built in the early 2010s, the school struggled. Uh, They fought through that struggle. They became a high-performing school, top-ranked by the city's own metrics. And so through all that work, they had really bonded and became a, a place where another option for parents in the neighborhood to send their kids to. We had seen, the city had seen uh, previously in 2013 when 49 elementary schools were closed. Pretty much all of those were in black and brown neighborhoods in the city. And there was a lot of harm that was created in those closures. And so that same harm was about to be per, uh, perpetrated here in the South Loop neighborhood elementary school. And that's why so many people were fighting against the transition. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with filmmaker Kevin Shaw about his new documentary, Let the Little Light Shine. I'm watching it, and uh, you know, we already referenced the, the incredible access you had to this school. And then at a certain point, I started to think, I'm like, wow, I can't believe Chicago Public Schools was okay with with this. And then, uh, you know, I don't think this is a spoiler, but then it's kind of revealed that they really didn't know what was going on. So was there a, a concern from you that CPS would find out what you were doing and try to shut it down? I tried to engage the district from the very beginning, and... Um, just never got any responses from them. I tried to engage the CEO, even through an intermediary from the school board, and just never got any, never got a response from anyone. So for them to say that they didn't know what was going on, I don't think it's quite true. Maybe they didn't believe that the film would be made and be released and get a public media television deal and be available to national audiences, not only on television, but then in theaters as well as we're doing now. So I wish we were able to engage them. I think I never wanted to, and I didn't, I never wanted to put any of the children in harm's way. And that was always my number one thought in filming in schools. I have a history of filming in school so I know how to film in them safely and make sure that I have everyone's permissions to do that and I'm not talking just about the educators I'm talking about the families more importantly so I just took the effort along with my team my producer Rachel Dixon and we just made the extra effort to make sure that all the families knew that we were filming and when we were filming and certainly in working with the educator, the administrator, uh, the principal at that time, Isaac Castellas, who allowed us to be in the school. You know, he says in the movie why he allowed us to do that, knowing the risks that even he was taking. At the end of the day, you know, we can be critical to the things that we love and, and cherish the most, whether that be people in our family or institutions and it's institutions that we love, and, and people love public education. People love sending their kids to Chicago public schools. They want the best when they're sending their kids to Chicago public schools. And so they hold them in high regard. And sometimes at times they're going to be critical of Chicago public schools because they want the best for their kids and they want the best for their schools and for their institutions. And so if anything, if we're critical of the district in the movie, it's coming out of a space of love because people love public education. So there are all these moving parts, which is kind of what makes it so compelling. We have the, the parents and the students and then the, the school staff and CPS. And then on the other side, there's this group of, I guess you would say, community members, the Prairie District Neighborhood Alliance, and people with the South Loop Elementary that that are kind of pushing this plan to convert to NTA. And then you're able to, to talk to a couple of those folks. What's your approach when, like, you don't want to paint them as villains, but you're also trying to, like, shed light on their point of view? Yeah, it was important to shed light on the point of view of the parents and the people who wanted the high school. I think you... You said it best. I didn't want to paint them as villains. You might not agree with their point of view, but there are people that do agree with that point of view, and they're not coming at it. They believe they're not coming at it from a from a racial bias. 
And so I thought it was just important, definitely very important to have that in the film so that I would not be stereotyping another segment of this community unfairly. I didn't have a great success reaching out to other families that had children going to the South Loop Elementary. I just think it was a little bit too much of a hot button issue for some families to commit to speaking or commit to me, you know, trying to follow their children like I was doing with some of the NTA families. But it was very important to at least get, I would call the kind of two power brokers of the area there to speak about the situation from their point of view. And we're able to to get those two. And and I'm thankful that they were uh, honest with their points of view. And and I hope that they believe that, you know, I was fair to them because that was my number one thing. It's just, I might not agree with all the opinions that everybody states, but I want to be fair to everyone's opinion. And and hopefully they believe that we did, uh, did do that, did accomplish that. Was there a point while you were making this where you knew you you had something that this could be a, a project that could have wider distribution? Well, I think, you know, as you're an independent filmmaker and you have an idea and um, you're working through the channels that you know in the documentary industry, and for me, it was applying for different production grants. Uh, when I started to secure some of these grants, based off of some of the early footage that I had filmed and then just based off of the overarching story, uh, I started to realize that, yeah, people were very interested in the, in the subject and they wanted to know more. And because of that, they were willing to commit uh, certain production monies. At that point, I realized that, okay, yes, uh, this is a viable project that can be, have some sort of distri- uh, distribution with someone, uh, for me, I always believe that this audience would be something that would be found on, on the public media space. And so the majority of my funding has come from public media entities. That's why we're on PBS and, and POV in, in December. And, and our co-production partner is ITVS. And uh, these are companies that are obviously ITVS funnels a lot of uh, all their projects through public media space. So when ITVS and and others kind of came on board, Black Public Media was another um, entity that uh, helped fund the film. I knew that this was a a viable uh, piece. I think a lot of people will relate to it in in some way. And they'll, uh, you know, I think it hits all the emotions. I think you will find humor in it. You will laugh. uh, You will remember your time as an elementary school kid, as an adolescent uh, you will cry at moments, you will be upset at moments, and uh, you will find joy in it all. It really is a crowd-pleasing film that we feel can touch a lot of buttons and, and leave you leave you thinking about some things that you might not expect. You mentioned the uh, the POV series that'll you know this is going to air on PBS later in the year, and then it's got its Chicago run at the Siskel Center, which we're going to talk about here in a second. I know it's been making you know some rounds at the on the festival circuit, and I've been reading some of the write ups from the different communities, and it seems to be getting like a really positive reaction. That has to be pretty gratifying. Well, I think it's been really gratifying for the NTA community, you know, who sits there and really didn't recognize that their story could resonate with folks outside of their community, outside of Chicago. 
so when you when they recognize when they recognize that when I recognize that I see the universal quality of it it's great you know there's there's no doubt that it's a great great feeling and we know that we have something here that can touch people on all levels and then now it's getting a a run at the the Cisco Center here in the in the city where the story takes place that's going to be special because the people coming to see it probably even have a deeper understanding of some of these issues yeah well we um we had our chicago premiere at the doc 10 film festival at the cisco in early may and we sold out both theaters on the day of our screening uh that's how much anticipation there was for the film and the response that day was really incredible. We were able to negotiate a um, small theatrical run back at the Cisco for a week. We have three showings a day, which is awesome. So there's plenty of opportunities to see the film starting Friday, August 12th, all the way through August, uh, August 18th. Uh, we're going to have panel discussions at the end of uh, the last screening of each night featuring special guests each night, some of the film participants. Uh, we have some great moderators. Uh, Dr. Eve Ewing uh, is coming in to uh, moderate a panel, a teacher's night panel. We have some activists from the area that are coming in to speak about the film. We have some of our students, you know, all of our students who were eighth graders at the time of the filming you know, they're all now have graduated high school and are now off to college. And so to have some of them come back and talk about their experience, looking back at their younger selves, that should be a, a fun, fun discussion. So if you go onto the Cisco website, filmcenter.org, and you look up Let the Little Light Shine, you can see a list of all of our screenings, all of our panel information there. It should be fun. And then you know, it moves on where our theatrical run continues in New York, starting August 25th at the IFC Center. Then we're uh, going out to L.A. for a week at the Lemley in Santa Monica uh, for a week. Actually just booked a theater in San Diego uh, at the end of September. There'll be some more bookings uh, leading up again to our television debut on PBS POV December 12th. I did want to mentioned as i was watching it i noticed you know the the kind of the the subtle jazz score underneath it and i was like oh, i gotta see who did this and then i khalil el zabar he was actually one of the first people i ever had on the show back when i first started this uh which was in 2014 and i just remember thinking he was like the coolest guy ever how did you connect with uh khalil i connected with him on a on a show on a radio interview i just started to investigate his sound, his music off of that interview there. I just thought that he was such a unique individual, had a very unique sound. And I was looking for something different uh, musically for this particular film. There's probably a preconceived notion of what music would fit for like a, you know, young African-American elementary school, young adolescents, et cetera, et cetera. And I wanted to go against that. You know, I wanted to flip it up and give you something a little bit more unexpected and something that was, you know, with true instruments, wasn't symphonic. And Khalil really hit all of those elements for me. So, you know, 
believe in the blind email, the blind cold call. (laughs) I sent him an email based off his website. I sent him a little trailer that I had cut at that point in time. And I asked him, would he be interested in scoring the project? And he, you know, to his credit, wrote me back and said, let's talk. And um, that was the beginning of our collaboration. So I know the the focus is on let the the little light shine, but I did read something that you're already working on your next project. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're working on the story of the uh, 2014 Jackie Robinson West Little League baseball team. There were their rise, fall, and kind of search for redemption, telling the story through the eyes of uh, several of those young men who are now young men. They're not kids. They're 12, 13 at that time. Now they're 18, 19, 20-year-olds off to college, uh, still playing baseball, uh, which is a great fact based off of all the fallback that came from that. And so, you know, it'll be a search to tell that entire story, kind of find out who was at fault for why they took such a fall from grace and how they managed to cope through all of that adversity. And this will really be a a first time to really hear more from the kids who are no longer kids, but more from the young men about what they went through. And that really hasn't been been told. So still in the process of filming and probably looking for a release and maybe next year or in 2024. 2024 might be better, right? It'd be 10 years. So <laughs> right, right. That's what I'm aiming. That's what I'm aiming for. Well, that sounds intriguing. Yeah, I remember when all that happened. Kevin, I got to tell you, it was really enjoyed. Let the little light shine, and I appreciate you taking time out of your day to to talk with us. Gary, thank you very much. Thanks for uplifting our film, and we appreciate it so much. Let me tell you something, children. This little light. That's Kevin Shaw. He's the director of Let the Little Light Shine. The documentary is currently playing at the Siskel Film Center through Thursday, August 18th. There are several panel discussions and programs taking place alongside the screenings, and you can find a complete schedule at siskelfilmcenter.org. And you can learn more about the documentary at lightshinefilm.com. Let it shine to show my love I'm gonna tell you that everywhere I go. And that's gonna wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name's Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Art Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Show my lover I got to tell you that When I see my neighbor coming I'm gonna let